Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 6. And then he mentions the heresy. Now, it's very odd again. He has to, there, As you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, there was a, a garden variety of heresies. There were, and some of them were enormously interesting and and uh, so on and so forth. He could have gotten into some very interesting theological stuff if he wanted to. He picks a kind of bread and butter heresy, namely the Epicurean heresy. Uh, we think of it literally as a bread and butter heresy. It's not. We think of, it, of the Epicureans as being those who just kind of have a wonderful you know, go of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, and all that. Epicurus, uh, in the ancient world, and his philosophical adherents in the medieval world, were much more serious and much more uh, decent, in a way, than that. They were much... Uh, it was a serious philosophical position. It was the goal of, that one ought to try to live one's life with nobility and integrity and wisdom, and gentleness, and compassion, and all the rest of it. And there was none of this eat, drink, and be merry business to it. The point of it was that there is only this life. There is no life after death. And so we must try to do the best we can with this life. That sounds familiar. I know that one. Don't you? It's okay. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Aside from the historical fact that the heresy soon degenerated into eat, drink, and be merry, which tells us something interesting, too. Um, but in Dante's time, he's not critiquing these people for being uh, indulgent or anything like that. This is a philosophical heresy. It seems innocent enough. Let death take care of itself. There's no life after death. Let's try to be the best we can. Well, okay. Seems okay. Well, let's take a look at these two. Uh, these two souls are being punished here. One is Farinata. He's the first one that comes up. He he comes up out of his tomb uh, with tremendous presence and uh, and awesomeness. And uh, we find out that he, we find out about Farinata. He is a, in Dante's time, there were factions. There was tremendous factionalism in Florence. The two original factions were the Ghibellines and the Guelphs. Uh, interestingly here, Farinata is a Ghibelline political leader and Cavalcanti is a Guelph, so we have two of those in the same tomb. But anyway, Farinata is a, a political leader who, uh, who died shortly before Dante's time. Uh, but was uh, widely uh, remembered for his the role he played in Florentine politics, and it was a bloody and fractious kind of a period in Florence's history. And he comes proudly up out of the tomb, speaking with great force. And the first question he asked Dante is, who were your ancestors? What he wants to know is, how can he place Dante into his political map because his political map has become the map of his universe 
and he wants to locate Dante on it. And Dante tells him, well, Dante came from Guelph's family. Granada raises his eyebrows and says, they have been the enemy of my family and my party and of me. And they have this little, there's this little tension here. And Dante is quite awed by this character. So odd, as a matter of fact, that people, most commentators uh, say that Farinata, they, they link Farinata with Francesca. You know, Francesca, uh, who's the, uh, who's the, the, the uh, lover in Canto V, who so touched Dante, they link Farinata in the sense that Farinata also, Dante's just awed by this Farinata character. Well, as I point out when we talked about Canto V, I think, I think in both cases, Dante the poet, there are two Dantes. Dante the pilgrim was awed, and Dante the poet was not a bit awed. And he had to write it very skillfully so that it appeared that Dante the pilgrim was awed, while meantime Dante the poet leaves hints at least of, a, of, of casting a colder eye on the situation. If you read this as Dante the poet being awed by Farinata, I think you miss some of the fun of the poem. I think Farinata, for all his... It, he, it says, he stood up as though he had scorn for hell. As, he, as though he scorned hell. People have commented on how important Farinata particularly, and in a way Farinata and Cavalcanti together are for Dante, but I think if you blink a couple of times and look back, you see the Abbot and Costello of the Inferno. They have overplayed the role, and so you, what you get is this silliness. Now, not not very many commentators see it that way. I, st I started seeing it as imagine imagine William Buckley and Gore Vidal having a debate for all eternity. You know, that's what that's what this is all about. <laughs> well, so. Pardon me for having fun at my work, but uh, <laughs> Farinata is as public as a park statue, and Dante visits him like a pigeon, and suddenly we see it in a different light, <laughs> and Dante brings out in Farinata the very goofiness of his, of his existence, which is that he strove to leave his mark on the world. He strove to do something permanent, and he chose as his means of doing so partisan politics. Nothing is more pathetic. He strove to do something that was permanent, and he chose party politics as his way of doing so. And Dante simply tells him that the pendulum, you know, is still swinging. And he says, what? <laughs> what? There's nothing permanent left of my work? Well, meanwhile, Cavalcanti he doesn't, he's not quite the same stature. He kind of creeps up out of the tomb. 
on his knees, and he hears this voice of Dante's, and Dante had been a close friend of Cavalcante's son, the poet Guido. Cavalcante says, where's Guido? And Dante says, well, he, not here, he didn't know how to follow. Now, the, the text there, by the way, I don't have my text in front of me, but the text there is confusing. Uh, Mandelbaum has uh, translated it so that it, it means Guido did not follow uh, Beatrice. Some people translate it as though Beat, uh, Guido did not follow uh, Virgil. I don't think it really m makes much difference. The point is that Guido would not submit himself uh, to an agenda over which he did not have final authority. And that's the difference between Guido and Dante. Uh, and whether the agenda is personified in Virgil or Beatrice is a, is a minor point. Uh, but Cavalcante is so touchy about this that he misinterprets what Dante says. He, th he thinks Dante says that Guido has died. And Dante says, oh no, he's not dead. Well, he doesn't say that. He, he doesn't have time. Guido uh, Cavalcante swoons, really. It's a kind of, there's a kind of an irony here that only people in Dante's time may, may have had access to, and that is that he wasn't dead in April of 1300. He died in August of 1300, as though that's a big deal, the difference between those two times. Anyway, it was a big deal for Guido, I mean for Cavalcanti. He's very concerned about this. I suggested that Farinato was public as a park statue. Uh, Cavalcanti is as private as a family tree. And Dante is still the pigeon. And uh, what is it that Cavalcante is whining about? What he's whining about is that his life project has now been called into question. And his life project was the other one that gets us. Progeny. His life project was Farinata's was to leave his mark in history, to become, to become well-remembered. And Guida and uh, Cavalcante's was to leave a family line, to become, if we could use this term for this, reincarnated. And so now let's look back and see, like the elf, like the whale and the bat, what these two strange creatures have in common. I think what they have in common is that they were both inordinately consumed with immortality projects. How are we going to outflank death? They probably never asked themselves that question. It's the kind of thing that seeps in unconsciously. But what I think you see in these two men is two very standard textbook versions, generic, unimaginative, but standard versions of the Human Immortality Project. They tried to buy a piece of the rock 
and they paid for it with their lives. Martin Buber says, We are resolved to tend with holy care the holy treasure of our actuality that has been given to us for this life and perhaps for no other life that might be closer to the truth. There's an awful lot in that little sentence. But the phrase I wanted to bring up right now is the holy treasure of our actuality. That is what Cavalcante and Farinata paid for the immortality which they didn't get in return. What has irritated them in Dante's visit with them is that they have been brought to consciousness of the fact that their immortality project failed. Well, now let's go back and look at the heresy. The heresy is that the soul dies with the body. The heresy is that there, that there is no life after death. Now, we find that hard to think of as heretical. I mean, we, we're, we're perfectly willing to let anybody think whatever they want to think on that. And on Tuesday, we may think one thing and Wednesday another. That's the way it is, right? But let's look closer at this. Life after death is a verbal formulation using a temporal metaphor to express the fact that death has meaning. Okay. The essence of it is not its mythological expression, but the deeper significance that it conveys. Without it, or something comparable to it, death will be regarded as meaningless. Now, if death is meaningless, I will have to repress it or ignore it or depreciate it or mock it. I will somehow have to tame it. I will have to get it out of the way if I'm going to live. It's too... It's too... It's too rude and crude in its meaninglessness for me to have anything to do with it. So I will repress it. Ernest Becker writes this, History is the career of, the, of a frightened animal who has to deaden himself against life in order to live. And it is this very deadening that takes such a toll of others' lives. If death is meaningless, I have to deaden myself to it in order to get myself worked up about anything. Now, if I, repre if I repress it, in order, I try to repress it in order to get on with my life, but you know what? I can't. Because 
we are, as we used to say, mortals. That is to say, death is in the definition of us. It's part of our definition. We are defined as people who die. We're not just people, and then there's this other little thing happens at the end called death. We are people who die. That's who we are. We're mortals. It's the essence of who we are. You remove death, and you remove the thing that makes us who we are. In a world where death is meaningless, survival takes on far more importance than it deserves. I think, now this is a funny thing to say, I think of uh, our old friend uh, Larry Kincaid, who used to teach history down at UCLA, and uh, he, he said he remembered in the faculty lounge one time, he, he and his history professor friends were talking about the Civil War, and uh, somebody was talking about the slaughter at a certain battle someplace and how many people died. And another one of the historians, you know, munching on his sandwich at the table said, uh, well, that's okay, they'd all be dead by now anyway. <laughs> well, it may seem heartless, but there's something to be said for that point of view. <laughs> One must not forget it. So survival takes on more importance than it deserves in a world where death is meaningless. We try to hang on. And also survival, since survival begins to play a more important role, our lives become more cautious, more timid. We live less lustily. We live less audaciously. And probably most importantly, we become preoccupied either consciously or more probably unconsciously without flanking death and its meaninglessness. We strive to be, and here's where Farinata and Kavakanti come in, we strive to be remembered or we strive to reincarnate. We do it through uh, a reputation that we leave behind or through a family that we leave behind. All this innocent enough. By the way, Dante's going to have some positive things to say about fame later on. Uh, but the point being that there is, is this a playing out of a strategy to outflank death? My grandfather was named Gilbert Hunt Bailey. My father was named Gilbert Hunt Bailey. I am named Gilbert Hunt Bailey, and my son is named Gilbert Hunt Bailey. It's conceivable, though very unlikely, that it might go another generation or two. So what? <laughs> <laughs> It's pathetic if it's, you see, if it's some subtle and unconscious way of trying to achieve immortality in a world where death is meaningless. Well, I wanted to read, apropos of immortality projects, uh, a few little poems.
you'll probably be familiar with them all, really. The first one I want to read is Shelley's Ozymandias. It's a poem about the great Ramses II of Egypt. Ramses was uh, reigned over Egypt for like 60 years and, and built these massive uh, uh, structures to himself and to his reign. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lives whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well, well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. William Butler Yeats writes his poem. His chosen comrades thought at school he must grow a famous man. He thought the same, and lived by rule all his twenties crammed with toil. What then, sang Plato's ghost, what then? Everything he wrote was read. After certain years he won sufficient money for his need, friends that have been friends indeed. What then, sang Plato's ghost, what then? All his happier dreams came true. A small old house, wife, daughter, son, grounds where plum and cabbage grew, poets and wits about him drew. What then, sang Plato's ghost, what then? The work is done. Grown old, he thought, according to my boyish plan. Let the fools rage, I swerved in naught, Something to profession to perfection brought, but louder sang that ghost. What then? And here's Eliot from the Choruses from the Rock. O my soul, be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. Questions like what then? A weariness of men who turn from God to the grandeur of your mind and the glory of your action, to arts and inventions and daring enterprises, to schemes of human greatness thoroughly discredited, binding the earth and water to your service, exploiting the seas and developing the mountains, dividing the stars into common and preferred, engaged in devising the perfect refrigerator, engaged in working out a rational morality, engaged in printing as many books as possible, plotting of happiness and flinging empty bottles, turning from your vacancy to fevered enthusiasm for nation or race or what you call humanity. Though you forget the way to the temple, there is one who remembers the way to your door. Life you may evade, but death you shall not. You shall not deny the stranger. Now what Eliot is alluding to if you will notice, is what we could without 
putting too fine a point on it, call modern American existence. Based on what? The flight from or the attempt to outflank meaningless death. So I wanted to do, finally, a meditation on that. The great divine stroke of genius was death. Only God could have thought of it. Consciousness, we learn from anthropology, begins at the grave site. Human consciousness begins at the grave site. And if it wanders too far from where it began, it loses itself. This is a dying and a rising universe. It is a dying and a rising universe. In this part of the divine comedy, the heretics, the murderers, and the suicides have all tried to tame death. And what they have in common is the inability to come to grips with what is essentially human about us, namely that we are mortals and that we die. Everything that lives dies. Only humans face only humans meet death. Now, death is God's most ingenious creation. Its job is to pry life loose from the ego. It may not always work because we are free to hang on. And that's why I guess there has to be a hell. It may not always work. But it is, let's say, God's best shot at prying life loose from the ego. Now, the Epicureans regarded death and suffering as meaningless. Nothing could be more radically and diametrically opposed to Christian cosmology than that. God is in death. The glassy-eyed little creature that lives in the narcotics we use to dull us to death is someone else. Ernest Becker wrote, once you base your whole life striving on a desperate lie and try to implement that lie, try to make the world just the opposite of what it is, then you instrument your own undoing. If death is meaningless, then I must repress it. When I repress it, I lose my humanity. I lose that which makes me specifically human.
and when I repress it, I begin to generate evil. The repression of death is the source of evil. It's the cause of the warping of reality. It sets in motion the delusions, the fear, the meanness, the misplaced self-regard, and all the rest of it, the desperation. So Meister Eckhart said, die before you die. In the, ri in the dying and rising universe, there's only one real source of lasting transformation, and that is love that is willing to suffer and die. Nicholas Berdyaev, the Russian Christian existentialist, I guess, I don't know what to call him, provides what I think could be regarded as a, uh, a map of the real world. If it's a dying and a rising universe, uh, and the only transforming, truly transforming agent is love that's willing to suffer and die, uh, then Berdaev provides a, a little, a little set, a, a summation of the law and the prophets. Let's put it that way. <laughs> a couple of rules to go by. Treat the dead as though they're alive, and the living as though they're dying. Treat the dead as though they're alive and the living as though they're dying. We are dying. We try not to become acutely aware of that moment to moment. We are dying. Sometimes we look out and we say, oh, he's getting older. Well, hell, who isn't? <laughs> <laughs> we are dying. Imagine for a moment that we learned that in five minutes, and let's give us ten, ten minutes, we're all going to die. Now, part of this has to be that there's absolutely no recourse to another alternative. That is simply going to happen. My guess is that we would that we would come alive as we've never been alive, and we'd become real as we'd never been real, and we would surprise ourselves at how wonderful we really are. Only if there was no alternative. If there was an alternative, we would elbow each other getting out that door. <laughs> That's the nature. But you know, there is no alternative. So we don't need to elbow each other. We won't do any good. There is none. The difference is, instead of ten minutes, we have whatever we have. Ten years, or fifty years, or ten weeks, or two, whatever. We have this other thing. But it's the same, exactly the same situation. Berdive says, treat the dead as though they're living, and the living as though they're dying. I'll share a little secret with you. I uh, received the Eucharist. Occasionally, I receive the Eucharist more frequently than I ought to. 
I'm, I'm confident of that. It's very easy to go fall asleep at the wheel in situations like that. It's very easy to do it routinely. So sometimes when I do, I, I have to, I have to keep myself alert. Of late, I have, I have been, uh, I'm reminded in line. This is the way it's done, where I take the Eucharist. So one stands in line, you see, and goes up and. And I think in line of uh, of the people in Jonestown waiting for their Sinai. Remember that thing, Guyana thing. Sick, perversion, death, really sick. Don't get me wrong when I use the metaphor. Sick, perversion, death, but a perversion of something, a, a perversion of the mystery. It was not the perversion of a perversion, it was the perversion of a mystery. And so, I think sometimes when I'm standing in line to receive the Eucharist, that I must receive this like those poor benighted souls received their little Sinai. That when I put this in and swallow it, then it's just a matter of time and the only question is, what am I going to do with the time? Who am I going to hug? If life and death can face one another, they can eventually reveal themselves fully to each other. When this happens, the ego, which has as perhaps its major responsibility the keeping of them separate, the ego will be out of work, or at least significantly less central to the operation. The ego might then become a charming, if somewhat amusing, appendage in life's household, like a chauffeur who only takes out the old Duesenberg when friends come over on Sunday afternoon an innocent enough function. We must find these egos jobs. They will not be laid off without some jobs. We can find jobs for them. I sometimes put mine to work here. The death of the body is shocking and terrifying and awful. The death of the self is the central cosmic event. And they sometimes coincide. And that's why death is so confusing for us to watch. The death of the self is the source of redemption. The more complete the self that dies the more redemptive the outcome. Death properly consummated is resurrection. But if I've spent my life running from it, I am less likely than I am anyway to properly consummate it. Dante devotes 
essentially one canto to a schemata of the rest of hell. It's divided uh, essentially into two parts, and they are subdivided, the part, the, the, where the violent are punished and where the fraudulent are punished. Uh, the fraudulent punished more than the violent because their sin is, is a perversion of something more human. Animals can occasionally be violent, though usually with more purpose than some of human violence, uh, but animals are never fraudulent. And the fraudulent uh, are divided into two categories, those who are generally fraudulent, the, the uh, run-of-the-mill fraud, and then the special fraudulents of those who, are, who betray a great trust. So they are the treacherous in the very pit of hell. And then we get a look at those who are violent against their neighbors. And the question is, does this relate at all to this immortality project that we saw as part of the heresy? Dante makes no relationship to it except that they are uh, side by side in hell. Uh, but let me offer this to you from Ernest Becker's uh, book. Becker's written several books that are, I think, supremely valuable in our time. He wrote The Denial of Death, and he wrote another book called The uh, Escape from Evil. And in the latter of those two, he said, Each person nourishes his immortality in the ideology of self-preservation to which he gives his allegiance. This gives his life the only abiding significance it can have no wonder men go into a rage over fine points of belief. If your adversary wins the argument about truth, you die. Your immortality system has been shown to be fallible. Well, with that in mind, we might journey into the, to the realm of the, where the violent are punished. And I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. There's a minotaur who is the personification of the... the of enormous rage, a wrath so so uh, bestial and irrational that it is per, uh, paralyzed in the presence of an authority like Virgil. And then Dante does a very strange thing, typically Dantean genius. He shows you this pure violence, this embodiment of violence in the Minotaur. Blind, bestial, benighted violence. And the next thing he shows you is another creature which is half animal, half human, a group of them, the centaurs. And the centaurs are the torturers of this realm of hell. This realm of hell has uh, Phlegethon, the river of blood, and this is all the blood that flows from all of those who, are, who have been victims of violence. And the river flows into hell, and those who have been the perpetrators of violence have to live eternally in that river. And the centaurs, half horse, half human, uh, stalk the banks of the river, shooting arrows into those who come up out of the river of blood more than they're allowed to. They're, they're in, submerged in the river according to how grievous their violence was. And if they come up above that, they get shot by the centaur. But after showing the personification of bestiality and violence, Dante then shows the... the, the uh, uh, centaurs, and they seem to be remarkably uh, accommodating, even courteous. Uh, they're willing to do the bidding of Virgil and Dante. They behave well. 
And one wonders what's going on here, and uh, that people have made various stabs at it, and so I would like to make a stab at it. I think what's going on here, in the text there are interesting terms. We find out that they are armed, we find out that they are in ranks, we find out that the three leaders move forward from the ranks uh, together to meet Dante and Virgil. We find out that they have an hi a hierarchical uh, ordering system where one orders another. I think what is person what's being pictured here is the military mentality. And the reason they are so apparently poised and un um, undemented is because the military can commit bestial violence in good conscience as long as it obeys the rules of the military order. So the irony is they're well, they're well behaved. And when Virgil says, we're going to have to get across this river riding on the back of one of you guys, they say, yes, sir. I want to skip to the end of Canto 15, uh, 13 just for a second because it relates to the same issue. At the end of Canto 13, Dante meets the anonymous suicide and he talks about talks to this character and the character says he is from Florence and he says that uh, he mentions this thing about Florence which is that uh, in Roman times, I mean, the, before it was Christianized, Florence's patron was the god Mars, the god of war. And uh, when Florence was converted to Christianity, the patron was then John the Baptist. And this soul uh, mentions the fact that there is still the remnants of a statue on the banks of the Arno dedicated to Mars, and that uh, it, is, it is the Martian quality which still somehow survives the Christian overlay in Florence. A, an obvious reference, I think, in Dante to the, to, the, to the factionalism in Florence. But I think there's an available insight here, available, only available, I don't think it's Dante's insight, but I think it is available from the symbolism, namely that at first glance the prophet, here John the Baptist, and the warrior have a number of things in common. They have a kind of partisan uh, tension in their being, and they are out to rectify the situation. They are out to, they are there to root out the problem. And that, that they are so superimposed in this image is very fascinating. The warrior and the prophet. Because we tend to get them mixed up. The warrior is, is trying to root out the problem, and the problem for the warrior is over there. Those guys. The prophet, the Old Testament prophets, and John the Baptist was the last of the great Old Testament prophets. For the Old Testament prophets, the problem is right here. The prophet is, out, is there to root out the problem, but quite contrary to the warrior, his problem is right. He says, this problem is Israel's problem. This is not what's wrong with the Philistines. This is what's wrong with Israel. <laughs> 
And I think it's interesting that the two get confused. I think in our time, I mean, we, we can all think of examples of this in our own lives and, and otherwise. I think in our time, somebody like Solzhenitsyn performs the great prophetic work of pointing to an outrage in his own culture. And uh, we import him into our uh, culture world and use him as a warrior pointing to them. What we need is a Solzhenitsyn of our own. Uh, they walk into this dark wood and there are these little gnarled, thorny trees uh, being visited by the harpies. The harpies are these, these classical beasts that, that, uh, that devour. And as they break the twigs off these trees, they hiss and and uh, and speak and drip blood and moan and it's a bizarre sort of thing. And Dante is told to go ahead and break a twig off one of these trees and he does and he finds out that it's one of the souls that's being punished. And it's the soul of a suicide and his name is Pierre de la Vigna. And Dante speaks with him and Pierre de la Vigna had been a man born in humble uh, condition and had risen to a as as high as one could rise in the world without being part of the nobility. He had become the uh, Henry Kissinger of his day to Frederick II, the emperor. And uh, he had been, he was very proud, as he speaks to Dante, he's very proud of how prominent he was. He held both keys to Henry's heart, he said. That's uh, Frederick's heart. He could turn them at any time. Um, and he regarded his role as a splendid occupation. And then rumors circulated, jealous, typical jealousy around the court, and Frederick began to regard him as being perhaps treacherous, sent him to the dungeon and had him blinded. So from being the man behind the power to being a blind wretch in the dungeon. But as Pierre de la Vigne talks about this fall from greatness, you get the sense that what was bitter was not the physical torment. He doesn't mention that. What he mentions is the disgrace, the disdain in which he was held by others. Which is to say that, perhaps, that he had so identified with his role that when it was taken from him, there was nothing left. He had bartered away what Buber calls the holy actuality of his being for the job of counselor to the emperor in which case you could say his suicide began an awful long time ago and he only got around to to uh, finishing the job off when he got to the dungeon. I want to come back and look at this in a minute because Dante does another very strange thing. He gives us another group of squanderers. Now, we dealt with the squanderers up a little higher in the, in the realms of hell. And these are squanderers more grievously sinful than the others. They 
run through this wood of the, the squanderers are in the wood of suicide. They are punished in the wood of the suicides. That's very strange. They thrash through the wood of the suicides, tearing off branches as they go, chased by two mad dogs. And the mad dogs finally catch them and drag them down and tear them limb from limb. But they're the squanderers. And their, squ- their squandering is not uh, the result of uncontrolled appetites, as with the other squander. This squandering is more, if you will, ontological. This is the kind of squandering that comes from those who are living valueless lives. So you can use that uh, image there. Uh, Richard Avedon's portrait of Andy Andy Warhol and Andy Warhol's uh, rendition of multiple images of Marilyn Monroe. Andy Warhol died, as they say, of natural causes, and uh, Marilyn Monroe did not. They're on the same page there in in the sense that in Dante the suicides and the the special case of squanderers are on in the same re- region of hell uh, george santayana said uh, some have lost even the capacity to conceive of a true tragedy because they have no idea of a cosmic order of general laws of life or of an impersonal religion They measure the profundity of feeling by its intensity, not by its justifying relations. And the radical disintegration, excuse me, and in the radical disintegration of their spirit, the more they are devoured, the more they fancy themselves fed. Well, of course, it's a perversion of something central, And the central thing is that we are invited to give our lives. And uh, the suicide takes his life. When I saw that picture, Avedon's picture of uh, Andy Warhol, I thought of these lines I've always had in my head from Wallace Stevens. A big bird pecks at him for food. The big bird's bony appetite is as insatiable as the sun's. The suicides in this realm are are besieged by the harpies, who are the big birds with the insatiable appetite. American poet Lewis Simpson wrote this, Poets like Berryman and Sexton and Plath all three suicides. Poets but like Berryman and Sexton and Plath simply were unable to draw a separation between poetry and life. They could not find any relief. They had to be on all the time. Why? Because it was their immortality project. And they sold their life away for a piece of the rock and didn't get it. A little bit later in that same essay, Simpson says, Once you have told the terrible truth, 
And this I think of now in terms of the squanderers who who uh, inhabit that same page you have on on your lap there in the same realm in hell. Once you have told the terrible truth and made a sensation, the terrible tr tr truth perhaps being a Campbell's soup can, once you have told the terrible truth and made a sensation, what are you going to do next? You have to turn up the volume, write an even more terrible truth. And all the time, the poetry and the life are feeding on each other until pretty soon you cross a line and pass from emotion into hysteria. Ultimately, there's only one way left for you to prove your sincerity, and that is to kill yourself. They had the wrong theory of art. Their sincerity created a confusion between life and art. They were looking for salvation, but that is not what they found. In 1968, uh, Andy Warhol was shot by some disturbed young woman. And asked about it later, he said this, quote, The doctors and everyone else, including me, were sure I was going to die. So we all got ready, and then I didn't do it. I just want to call your attention to that. I didn't do it. Continuing, he says, But I always wished I had died, and still wish that, because I could have gotten the whole thing over with. I've come to love Andy Warhol. I really have. I never have before. Now, before I read Dante this week, I didn't love him at all. <laughs> Warhol said, I'm everything my scrapbook says I am. Immortality Project. I'm everything my scrapbook says I am, and the scrapbook weighed more than he did. Warhol kept, in the last years of his life, everything recorded. I'm telling you this with this lapel mic on and the tape recorder going, <laughs> aware of the irony of it. The, uh, the, the man who wrote the Time magazine uh, obituary article, Jack Kroll, wrote this, Warhol seemed to attend every party, always armed with his tape recorder and Polaroid camera. Fame that body snatcher possessed him more and more. The highest calling is to lay down one's life for one's friends. Death is a gift to others. The more complete the self that dies and the more completely the death is a gift the more awesome the consequences for the cosmos. The only transforming energy in the cosmos is a love that's willing to suffer and die. Well, I'll close with a little few lines from Wallace Stevens. 
except for us, Vesuvius might consume in solid fire the utmost earth and know no pain, ignoring the cocks that crow us up to die. This is a part of the sublime from which we shrink. And yet, except for us, the total past felt nothing when destroyed. Well, down those, down those stairs and out the door is a world that is operating on the principle that this is a life-or-death universe. And uh, if we buy into it, we'll be stuck with it. It's not a life-or-death universe. It's a dying and rising universe.